Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to Coastline. I always love when it's hard to bring you guys back together after the meet and greet. I want to, I want to show you something. This is one of my most beloved possessions in the world. So this is, I have a few surfboards. You need to know this about me. I've, I've got a few, but this one might be my favorite. This one just comes right after Liam, a little bit before Piper. But this is, this is my almond surfboard. This is what is called a 6-6 Pleasant Pheasant. This is by a surfboard company called Almond Surfboards, which is like the bougiest surfboard company in the world. This surfboard costs way too much money for a passer to own it. It is insane. And this is something that I dearly, dearly love. If you know anything about surfboards, when you look at this thing, you know that this is a surfboard that is not high performance. This is for a man who is aging and is losing some rounds in that battle. Uh, it's meant for sloppy summertime surf and really nice winter waves at the points in PV. So I found out about Almond Surfboards about five years ago, and I saw their surfboards, and I just fell in love with them because they were so cool, but they cost so much money, I knew I would never have a chance to get one. But there was a magazine called Wilderness Magazine that was giving one away, and they're allowing only 100 raffle tickets to be sold to get into there. Each raffle ticket cost $20. I bought five. $100 worth of raffle tickets, and I thought, this is how I'm going to get my almond surfboard, and I was confident I was going to get it. I was positive. I knew it deep in my soul that I was going to win this board, and I didn't. <laughs> I couldn't have been more surprised because it just felt like it was supposed to be mine, but I never forgot about that surfboard, and I never forgot about how cool these boards were, and so I checked Craigslist all of the time looking for one for sale, and then I saw it. In fact, I saw the board that had been given away in the raffle that somebody had won, and they had stuck it in their closet and had never ridden it. Didn't know what it was, so I called them, and in one hour, I was driving to their place and bought it for $300. This is my almond surfboard that I just knew I was supposed to have, and so did God. So I want you to think about that moment right there, about the random set of circumstances that caused me to see a board, want a board, miss a board, find it in someone's closet on Craigslist on that day at that time and be able to get it at a ridiculously stupid price. How does that happen? So you can probably think about it in a few ways. You can say it is just blind chance. That day, it's just completely random uh, set of circumstances that caused me to click on the page on that day and find it, and it has no meaning, no purpose, nothing beyond it, except the fact that it's just binary numbers working out, and somehow in the matrix, I won on that day. Option two, you could say, like, somehow I manifested it, right? Like, somehow I thought about it, and I put my energy out into the universe, and somehow the universe met that energy and gave it back to me, so I manifested the surfboard into my possession. You might say uh, it was karma. So somehow the universe 
is repaying me for my good deeds and all of the things I've done. And somehow, because I've put good out there, good has come back to me in this surfboard. Uh, Or you might say it's fate. That somehow the universe knew that it was supposed to be mine, and somehow it was destined to become mine, and it was only a matter of if, how, and when it was going to become my possession. Or you could take probably the most Christian point of view on it and say it's providence. That somehow God foreordained for this board to become mine and for it to enter into my possession. It's, yeah. So you can think about it, but ultimately here's the deal. How you think about it is going to shape a lot of the way that you kind of think about the world and the things in it. Because however you define the good in your world, you're also going to have to define the bad. So I was thinking about uh, some congregants back at Rolling Hills Covenant who we had the chance to pastor who were driving one day on the freeway. And as a couple, they were hit in a head-on accident and both were killed in that moment and it devastated the church. So how do you think about that moment? Or I think about a congregant who was loading their infant into their car one day. And as they went back into the house to get something, someone came and stole the car with the baby in it, and drove it 10 blocks away before realizing there was a baby in it, and then ditched both. How do you explain that kind of moment? How do you make sense out of those sorts of things? Or even I think about, like, it's not just simply, like, these kinds of things. How do you explain what happens to that bill of safety this last week in the football game? How do you convey to those players something that makes sense, that helps them understand what they just saw and the world that they're in? And it's not just personal. How do you help the women in Iran who are currently struggling under significant religious oppression? How do you help them make sense of their life and their time? How do you help people in Ukraine make sense of the world that they live as they live underneath Russian aggression? You see... However you think about the good that I manifested it or as chance or as God's kind of providence in it, you're going to have to look at the bad and use the same sort of formula to make sense of the difficult things in your life. Is that difficult thing also just chance? Does it have no meaning? Are we somehow just adrift in the universe and things are happening to us that have no purpose and no meaning? We just have to survive in it? Or... Does it actually have meaning and purpose? Has God actually created things? And God is actually steering and directing the universe? And if so, how did he give me that? Why did I get that? And if he brought this into my life, then can he actually be good at all? Has he somehow become complicit in the evil that has been happened to me by being the one who kind of initiated and brought it to us. These are all really big questions, and you ask them and you answer them oftentimes, probably almost daily, without even thinking about it and the implications of what it actually might be. This winter, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be spending it in the book of Esther. And the reason why I love being in the book of Esther is because it asks these questions. It asks us to put our trust in an unseen God. And putting our trust in an unseen God is oftentimes really challenging and really hard. And how we think about that God affects how we interpret all of the things happening in around us in our everyday lives. Uh, The book of Esther, if you're not familiar with it, it is a story about a young Jewish girl who gets swept up by the Persian Empire and ends up becoming the queen of Persia at the perfect moment to save the Jewish people from certain slaughter 
and genocide. It is not a passage that is often preached. It is not a sermon series that I've ever done. I don't know of another church that has preached it. Uh, To give you some context, in the first seven centuries of the church, there was not one single commentary written on the book of Esther. Martin Luther desperately did not want it into the canon of Scripture because of the fact that in the book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned once. It is fascinating for all of those reasons, but it's also this dramatic story that is a lot of fun, and we also believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful, right? For teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, we believe that there's something in here that's good for us today, even if it feels like it's part of an old world that we no longer see. When we look at the book of Esther, what I want you to know is that it is two things at the same time. It is tragedy and it's comedy. The best way to kind of understand that is, remember, if you, if you watch Netflix, the Bo Burnham special about this guy doing comedy during the pandemic is a great way of understanding the tension of what's happening in the book of Esther, laughing through tragedy. If you've ever watched the movie The Big Sick, uh, you get the same sort of feeling. If you remember the Oscar movie that won probably a decade ago, uh, Life is Beautiful, to laugh in the midst of sorrow oftentimes is the only way that you can make it through the sorrow. And so the book of Esther is like that. It is tied to the Jewish holiday of Parim, which is a rowdy celebration of how God delivers his people. It is both a children's story, which is what it's meant to be, and it's also a story that is so adult that you can't believe that you would ever let a child read it at all. My hope is as we read the book of Esther, you'd become familiar with a book that you've probably never read, never heard. I think obviously the women in our church are far more familiar than the men. I think women's Bible studies have oftentimes highlighted it and gone into the character study. So women, you get to explain this to your husbands when you get home. Uh, So it is to familiarize yourself with this book to help you understand it, but also to help us ask the questions, where is God in the good and the bad and the painful and the wonderful in life? Uh, To do this passage well, what I think is going to probably help us out is I'm going to teach it and then I'm going to preach it. So we're going to get into the technicalities of it. I'm going to explain the history, and then I'm going to try to apply it to your life. So if you get bored, hang in there. We're going to talk about how this applies to fifth period shortly. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, I'm so thrilled to do this. And I don't know if anybody else is here but me and Hunter, but Lord, uh, it's a joy to open up your word and to be challenged by it. And so God, would you teach? Be bigger than me. Be bigger than the sermon. Would your word come alive Would you draw people in? Um, Lord, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Let hate receive glory today as well. In his name we pray. Amen. So before we read from the passage, let me try to give you a little bit of history. Where are we in the Bible when we read the book of Esther? A lot of times we refer to the exile as being this kind of part of every Bible story. It's very much a part of this one. Uh, The exile is the story how God made a promise to the nation of Israel that if they followed him, he would always be with them, always protect them, and they would never be defeated. But Israel broke that covenant. They stopped following God, and so God removed his hand of blessing, and they were quickly conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Now, eventually, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire. When Babylon conquered Israel, they took all of the Jewish people, everybody of significance and talent, they brought them to Babylon and they lived there as slaves. But when the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians, suddenly they're like, why are these Jews here? 
Why are they so far displaced from their land? And so the Persian Empire sent them back. They allowed to go back. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of the two great returns of the Jewish people out of Babylon back home. The book of Esther takes a look at those who stayed. Not everybody went back home to Israel. Some stayed because they had good jobs, they had married, they found homes. And so it's a story of the people who stay in the city of Susa. And so that's kind of the focus here. The Persians, Persia at this time is led by a man named Xerxes. And believe it or not, you know who he is. Uh, Xerxes had a father named Darius. Darius was this uh, important leader, and he tried to invade Greece and was not able to, was defeated. So when Xerxes became king, he decided he was going to do what his father could not, and he was going to go and invade Greece. When he had tried to invade Greece, the warriors of Sparta met him, led by King Leonidas, and with just 300 Spartan warriors, they turned back the Persian Empire. This is the plot of the movie 300. And it actually happened. It's a historical story. I've got the picture here of Xerxes on the screen. That is probably what he looked like historically. This is how the movie 300 portrays him. <laughs> he probably has less face necklaces than this. Uh, but when you see this guy, if he looks a little bit weird, if he looks a little bit off, well then you're picking up something important about Xerxes because he is completely unhinged as a person. Uh, he is a completely impulsive king who, is, who loves women and loves alcohol and loves making bad decisions. There's a story about when he tried to invade Greece, he built a bridge to cross this gap to get into Greece, going over a body of water. Uh, when he was building it, a storm came through, it washed out the bridge. And so what he decided to do was to kill all 35 bu bridge builders, and then to have men go down and whip the river 300 times with chains to punish it for what it had done to him. That gives you an idea of who he is. He's just a little bit off. Because now he's got people whipping the water and he no longer has any bridge builders. And he still has the same problem. This is the source of things that he does. Uh, because the Persian Empire was committed to writing, we know so much about Xerxes. More than maybe most people in the Bible. And when he leads uh, the Persian Empire, he leads an empire that is from North Africa to the Middle East, to India. It is huge. So the question is, how do you lead an area this big in a time without cell phones, or spy satellites, or emails, or even telegrams? And the answer to that is parties. He leads this area by throwing huge parties. This is out of Esther chapter 1. We're going to go from verse 1 to 9. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. 
The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality, meaning he liked wine, so everybody got to enjoy wine. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So a few things for you to pick up out of that long stretch of passages. Number one, it says that all of his nobles are present at this 180-day feast, which means every king, every prince, every princess, from every nation that he's conquered, they are all invited to this 180-day party. It says that every official is there, which means every bureaucrat, every administrative assistant, every middle manager, they're invited there as well. And then it says that all of the military leaders are there too. So every general, every colonel across the empire, they're all there in all of their military regalia, all to celebrate and to enjoy this party. You might ask the question, if every king and every bureaucrat and every military member is there, who is running the country? And the answer is nobody, because they're not afraid of anybody, because they've already killed everyone. They've already defeated them. So they're able to have these huge parties without any sort of concern about what might happen. And the point of the party is for everybody to come and witness the beauty and the glory and the power of Persia. Again, this is a 180-day party, and that might seem like hyperbole, but again, we have the histories of Persia, and this kind of thing happens all of the time. His entire goal in a 180-day party is to show you just how wealthy and powerful he is and just how benevolent he is to share it with you. To have not only the wealth for himself, but to give it away. His hope is that when every middle manager, every administrative assistant, every soldier, every general, when every prince goes home to their countries and people ask, so what is Persia like? What is this king like? What is this new empire that we're a part of? That they would say, it's the best. We seriously ate the best food. We watched the best parades. We went to the best galas. We had the time of our lives, and it was all paid for by the Persian Empire. They're trying to portray both their power, their might, but also warn you that if, all of, if he can have all of this, and if you rebel, it's all coming against you. Now, at the center of the celebration are the king and the queen, which is Xerxes and his queen Vashti. Xerxes is meant to be like a living symbol of the Persian Empire. He's meant to be kind of an embodiment of all they are and all that they desire to be. He carries with him all of the pride and all of the aspirations of his people. And when they honor him, they are in a sense honoring themselves because the king is Persia and Persia is the king. And so he's kind of at the center of this whole thing. But also alongside of him is also his queen Vashti. And she is meant to be the feminine embodiment of Persia. That means that all of her beauty, all of her grace, all of her radiance is meant to be a reflection on them and every woman of Persia and the ideals of Persia. There's a rabbi named Rabbi David Foreman. He says, if you want to try to find a contemporary example for America, think of the Statue of Liberty. 
that the Statue of Liberty is meant to be a feminine portrayal of our liberty, our freedom, our kindness, and the warm welcome that we have towards every foreigner entering the country. That is kind of maybe what you'd say Kate Middleton is supposed to be, or, or the queen is to be to England as well, right? Proper, beautiful, elegant, class, as a way of representing the entire nation. That is who Vashti is meant to be, the feminine representation of who the Persian Empire is. So this party, though, has this sudden and dramatic ending, and it's going to affect the fate of the Jewish people forever. So after 180 days of this party, it has a closing ceremony, seven days of feasting there to to kind of finish out those 180 days, but it's different than what we've seen so far. We're told that, that Queen Vashti has a party for the women, which we presume then means Xerxes has one just for the men. Why? Why do they feast for 180 days together, but in the final seven days they feast apart? We find out a little bit about what's happening from the historian Plutarch, who tells us about how the Persian courts work. Let me put this up here. When Persian kings dine, their legal wives sit beside them and share the feast. But if the men want to amuse themselves or get drunk, they send their wives away and they summon the singing girls and the concubines. Basically, the women are sent away so the men can enjoy the, the women who belong to the king and basically the strippers who belong to him as well. This becomes that kind of party. Again, it's been 180 days of drinking. These seven days, the men can drink as much as they want, and suddenly the party becomes incredibly raucous. And the women step aside, and they have their own party, probably partly out of their own safety, uh, but also so they don't have to be a part of that or even be insulted by the entire thing that's happening over there. The entire thing is not a safe environment really at all. And you could imagine that if you give a group of men who are powerful all of the wine that they could possibly have and put women in front of them, it's probably not going to end well, which is how this party results. Uh, let me read you first, uh, or Esther 1, 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, that is a way to say it, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. Uh, the ancient rabbis, when they talk about this passage, what they say is happening is that Queen Vashti is being summoned in her crown, but more than that, she's being summoned to come in only her crown. And if it's not that, then it's certainly Queen Vashti being summoned into day seven of a group of very drunk men to be stared at and ogled by them to view the true beauty of Persia. That if you enjoy, enjoyed the concubines and if you've enjoyed the strippers, just wait till you see Queen Vashti because there's nobody else like her. Uh, this is a woman who is certainly royalty, has come from a family with some sort of dignity, with some sort of royal lines, and she is in this moment being asked to come and lower herself, perhaps all the way, but in the very least, to come and to stand alongside the strippers and the concubines. It is a crass, cruel, demeaning position to put Vashti in. Vashti says no. 
Uh, to the modern woman, this might seem like just an obvious no. That there's never any answer that you could give other than no. But this is not a modern woman. This is an ancient woman working and living in a very patriarchal world. And as a result, her no is not expected. Certainly Xerxes expected for her to come in. When she says no, it shocks everyone. And it has a series of, it kind of tips the first domino, and a number of things are going to change the world. The first thing is that the king is humiliated. It says he's humiliated, he's furious. It says he's furious and crazy. It's not going to stop here. Look at Esther uh, 1, 17 to 18. The queen's conduct is going to become known to all women. And so they're going to despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. In short, the men of the empire fear an uprising by the women where they'll no longer strip for them. That's what the Bible says. I don't want to tell you. That is their very real concern, that there is a disobedience to their husbands that's just not going to end. And so Queen Vashti has to be dealt with. And, and the way that he de- deals with it is heavy and severe. This is verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written on the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. That's important. That Vashti is never again to enter into the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. In one moment... Vashti loses her husband, she loses her position, and she loses her good name. Now, historically, as this passage has been preached, she has been seen as a disobedient wife. In fact, there was lots of times in the past where this passage would be preached as a lesson to women why you need to submit to your husbands. But when we look at it now, it kind of has a different ring to it, where we suddenly see that her actions have this sort of courage to it this nobility to it, this kind of honor to it, that she would say no in a position where she could never say no, that she would resist people whose power you could not resist. It's kind of a startling thing when you look at it. Whoever Vashti was beyond this moment, in this moment, she is someone to be respected and certainly emulated. Now, what are we supposed to do with this passage today? How does this story about a marital spat affect you and I in this moment? A few thoughts for you. First of all, Esther chapter 1, it forces us to reconsider who really has power in this world. By all appearances, Xerxes is the most powerful person in the world. He is the king of the mightiest empire on the face of the earth. And for 180 days, he's been displaying his might and achievements to everyone. He is an irresistible force that will grind all opposition into dust. You cannot stop him. And nobody ever doubted this. And yet in one moment we see that even the mightiest king cannot control his own wife. That for 180 days he has been communicating that he is unstoppable, irresistible, and with one no, suddenly every person looks at themselves and they know that Xerxes is not who he has been telling them he is. That he is not as powerful, that he is not as strong, in fact he cannot even lead his own wife. And so suddenly, he is exposed as being weaker than everyone thought. 
In fact, it's more fragile than everyone, anyone even expected. In fact, his empire is so fragile that if anybody finds out about this story, then every woman will rebel against their husband and the entire thing will fall apart. That is their fear. You see, on the outside, this empire seemed to be so incredibly powerful, but in reality, it was as vulnerable as anything you will ever experience. I think there's a lesson for us in this. Oftentimes, you and I desire power as much as we can get in whatever positions we can get it as a way of safeguarding it. We fear that if anybody else were to get the power, then it will certainly be abused and things will far apart. There'll be gloomy outcomes, inept processes. The entire endeavor will certainly fail and pending doom can be certain if they get to lead. We might feel like this in terms of our kids' little league coach. We might feel about this about people applying for jobs in the companies that we work with. It has to be them. It cannot be him. We certainly feel this, I think, a lot of times in our political world, and we're oftentimes told this will happen if our people don't get into power. And so we fear what will happen if the wrong people get power, and as a result, we try to secure it for ourselves so that it cannot happen. Well, I think this passage reminds us, a very practical application is that power is oftentimes an illusion. It is not as strong as we think. Presidents are subject to Congress. Congress is subject to voters. CEOs are subject to shareholders. Teachers are subject to unions. And kings are subject to their wives. Everybody ultimately is accountable to someone. And the myth that someone has no accountability is simply not true. And yet that's so often what we fear. And so we grab for power, trying to preserve it because we fear actually being on the wrong side of power and what might actually happen to us. If there could be a comfort for us in this passage, it's this, is that nobody is as powerful as you fear. Nobody's as powerful as you fear. Whoever that one person is in your life, or that group of people in your life, or this unknown voting mass in your life, this unnamed group that you look at and doubt and fear and you try to grab and protect power from, nobody is as powerful as you think. If Xerxes is not powerful as you think, then neither are they. And that could, I hope, allow you to sleep a little bit better at night. That you're not going to be just so easily victimized or run over. That nobody is as powerful as we fear. Second thing. The very power that we do actually possess, and we do possess real power, some of us are in positions of significant influence, it's oftentimes more toxic to us than we realize. I just want you to consider Xerxes and for all the power that he has and look at what it does to him. I mean, what kind of monster summons his wife to come and be ogled by a group of other men? I mean, just put it into your present-day context. If you met a guy for the first time, he says, I want you to meet my wife, and when you notice her, I want you to notice her firm jawline and her shapely legs. It would be grotesque. You would want out of that conversation so quickly. And what Xerxes does is shaped by somebody who has been completely corrupted by the power that he has. And this is not an isolated story in Scripture. This happens again and again. David is called a man after God's own heart. And yet when he becomes king, he becomes capable of murder. Solomon is called the wisest man to ever live. And yet once he becomes king, he ends up taking over, I think, a thousand wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines, completely corrupted by it. Chronicles lists the kings of Israel. 
And amongst the 39 kings, it lists only eight of them actually do good. It should be no surprise to us then that when Satan wants to tempt Jesus, he tempts him first of all with bread, and then with a claim, but finally with power. Because there's no faster way to undermine a person's character or mission or ministry in life than to actually give them power. It is toxic to us. And we should be cautious that if we actually get what we grab for, it might change who we are fundamentally. We are never more vulnerable than when we are powerful. Now, inevitably, someone's going to have to have power. In fact, the Bible actually talks about how the desire to lead can be a good thing. But look at what it talks about for the person who leads. This is out of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, overseer desires a noble task. So it's a noble thing to want to be a leader in the church. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner that's worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. I've pointed this out in the past. When you're looking for somebody in leadership for a church, it says don't look at their resume, don't look at their talent, don't look at their charisma, don't look at their past work history. Instead, look for their character. Look for gentleness. Look for godliness. Look for hospitability. Don't look for somebody who fights easy. Be careful about somebody who loves money. You see, before you apply for that next job, before you take that volunteer position, once you decide to drop your resume, maybe the first question that every one of us needs to ask is, do I actually have the character to support the kind of power that's going to come with this? Am I actually the sort of person who can do this job without having it ruin me? Now, here's the thing. All of us are broken, and all of us are going to be ruined by the power we have, unless we remain intimately connected to God. We allow his character to slowly come out and overwhelm ours. And the good news is that he promises to do so. But for every position you have authority, for all the people that you lead or manage or serve, unless you're allowing Christ to work through you, you're probably going to be corrupted by it. And if you do allow him to come through, you are going to be a blessing to others. And finally, this. That the plans that God has for us oftentimes are bigger than anything that you and I can see. Uh, This book is called Esther, but you know what we haven't heard once? Esther. She is not in this chapter at all. Why is this chapter in this story if Esther's not present in it? In fact, this story takes place five years before chapter two. There's a five-year gap. Why are we told this story about Vashti and Xerxes? How is it important to the story of Esther? It is this. is that God is already, already laying out the circumstances that are going to lead to Esther's promotion. He's already pulling on the lives of kings and queens and rulers, directing their paths so that will lead to the redemption of his people. He's already controlling people who don't worship him and don't know him, two pagan king and queens. He's already directing their lives in a way that's going to bring his people and his own name glory. 
I was thinking this Christmas time at the song Joy to the World, uh, and there's this line in it, he makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and the wonder of his love. This is such an incredible passage. It makes me emotional every time I talk about it because God takes the nations and he makes them act in a way that ultimately will bring him, him glory down the road, whether they want to or not. And Xerxes and Vashti are simply laying down the groundwork for God's work. He's already using them, which means that there's probably places in your life where God is already moving and already laying down kind of sort of a paper trail. He's already kind of putting the crumbs out, and he's already connecting for what you're to do and for the redemption that's going to come through it. He's already working in your life, even if you can't see it. His plan began long before you started to see the evidence of it, which should comfort us for all the trouble and the trials that we face. Uh, Tim Keller has been a huge influence on me, and I love him a lot. And he does this thing with the Old Testament where he always tries to preach Christ through the old, which can be really challenging on a story like this. Like, how do you preach Christ out of this story? But I began to reflect on who Xerxes is as just this awful person, certainly, but especially an awful husband. And what he does to Vashti, and what it really costs her by his, act, her, his actions. And I was drawn in my mind to Ephesians chapter 5. And here it talks to real life husbands, people like you and me, men. And it talks to us about how we should love our wives. And the example, the inspiration of how we should love our wives goes back to how God has loved us, how Christ has loved us in his actions. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. The way Tim Keller would say it is that Jesus is the new and better Xerxes. He does what Xerxes could not do. Because where Xerxes used Vashti, Christ has loved us sacrificially. Where Xerxes humiliated Vashti, Christ was humiliated for us. Where Xerxes exploited Vashti, Christ gave away his power to, become in a, to live in a manger and take on human flesh for us. And where Xerxes sought to strip Vashti, Christ has clothed us with righteousness and beauty. And where Xerxes sullied her name to anybody who will listen, Christ has given us his name and presents us without stain and without blemish. So what can we do? Know that in our own earthly relationships, we can be prone to use people. We can be prone to grab for power. We can tend to um, lose ourselves in the positions that we have. But because of Christ, we truly know what love is. And because we truly know Christ, we're able to connect deeply to him and allow his character to come out of us and change us forever so that we can be like him. So that we don't have to be Xerxes. We don't have to be the monsters that we find ourselves to be. But we could instead be like Jesus.